Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, May 27th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by a video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Hello. And my KHN colleague, Roshana Pradhan. Hi, Julie. So first, since we've been tracking this, the Senate this week confirmed former Hill staffer Chiquita Brooks-Lashore to be the administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Five Republicans joined all the Democrats to vote for her. Um, this is one of the biggest jobs in the government in health care, right? I mean, I think people don't appreciate just how big CMS is and what it actually runs. So one of my colleagues actually did the math this week. And if you look at the dollars that flow through CMS, it's about a quarter of all federal spending. And that's just CMS. So uh, I think that it sounds like a technical job. The name of it sounds sort of esoteric, but actually it is a huge and important job overseeing these very, very large federal programs and these very, very large dollars of federal spending. And it also, we should remind people now, oversees the Affordable Care Act, even though that's not part of the name. Uh, When it passed, that's where it was put. And actually, that's what uh, Chiquita did in the Obama administration, worked for the the part of CMS that oversees uh, Obamacare. So we're we're hoping to get her on the podcast uh, soon and talk about what she has in mind. Um, Also this week, we're expecting President Biden's budget, or at least an outline of the budget, uh, on Friday. So alas, after we tape. But we're starting to hear about uh, some health things that are in it, kind of, right, Margot? Yeah, so my colleague Jim Tankersley at the Times uh, looks like he got a sneak peek at some documents and he reported on a few healthcare things. It doesn't sound like there are very big policy initiatives with dollars behind them, but there are a bunch of statements of intent that uh, the Biden administration is interested in lowering the age of eligibility for Medicare to 60, that he is interested in the creation of a public auction health plan on the exchanges, that he is also interested in expanding Medicare benefits for current beneficiaries to include dental, vision, and auditory services. So these are- Hearing aids. (laughs) Yeah, these are, you know, all goals that uh, are should sound familiar to our listeners. Uh, several of them were part of his campaign platform. The expansion of Medicare benefits to include more things was in a bill passed by the House last year and also is something that Bernie Sanders has been advocating for for a long time. Uh, apparently, there will also be some language about lowering prescription drug prices, including allowing Medicare to negotiate the price of drugs, as in everything the devil is in the details. So we'll see uh, tomorrow, hopefully, how fleshed out those proposals are. But I think they are all kind of gestures in the direction of healthcare policies that President Biden has been talking about for some time and uh, that we know are part of his agenda. So presidential budgets mean slightly more when the president's party is in power in Congress, but still not very much. Um, They're mostly kind of a statement of administration goals, as you say, Margo. Um, But one of the things that people are going to be looking for in this budget, Alice, is whether or not the administration proposes to end the Hyde Amendment, the 1976 restriction on the use of federal funds to pay for abortion. Abortion. Um, this is something that Democrats have tried and failed a few times to get out of the annual spending bill. Um, what do we know about whether it's going to be included or not included? 
Right. So like you said, what Biden proposes is largely symbolic because it'll be Congress that really makes the decision here. And, you know, based on my reporting, there are not the votes, at least in the Senate, to make this change. But for Biden, it's still a really big deal because most of what his administration has done so far on abortion rights is undue restrictions that the Trump administration imposed. But this would go beyond that. This would make a change that progressives have been agitating for for decades and once again allow um, federal funding for abortion. That means, you know, currently if you are on Medicaid or if you are a federal employee with health insurance through your job, you can't have abortion covered through your health insurance. And so progressives have long argued that this sets up this sort of two-tier system of rights where if you're wealthy and you have private insurance, you have meaningful access to abortion. And if you are poor or on one of these uh, programs, you do not. So Biden is expected to propose dropping the Hyde Amendment, and that's not the only anti-abortion writer in there. There are some other ones as well. But again, this is not expected to make it through Congress at this point. I'm old enough to remember when uh, they had this fight in 1993 when President Clinton came in, and it was actually Henry Hyde himself who managed to rewrite it in a way that got it back into the appropriation bill because there are arcane rules about how things can be put into appropriations bills on the House floor. And Henry Hyde was not to be messed with. It's also been sort of tinkered with over the years. But there's been, as Alice said, you know, for the last decade or so, you know, a a push by progressives to get it out, although there have never been the votes for it in Congress. Um, As Margot said, we will probably not see a real outline of a public option that will be in the budget. But apparently we may see an outline of a public option from Congress, not passing, mind you, but this week the Senate Health Committee Chair, woman Patty Murray of Washington, and the House Energy and Commerce Committee Chair, Frank Pallone of New Jersey, sent an open letter to their colleagues and academics and interest groups asking for some specifics to put on a skeleton that would better define what a public option might look like. I don't think anybody thinks a public option is going to become law in this Congress, at least. But how big a step forward would it be to actually start the debate on what it should include? Until now, it's been a pretty vague term that, you know, anybody that you can attach anything you want to it. Right. This is another area where Murray and Pallone's statement on this is both a big deal because they manage the big committees. And this is sort of the most high profile endorsement saying, you know, let's really be serious about it and move forward. But again, they say that they're going to talk about this at least through the end of July, which is, you know, right before Congress's August recess. And so real progress is not looking likely this year. I think it's also interesting that they sort of seem to be starting from scratch and are asking some of the basic questions, you know, who should be allowed to enroll in a public option? What kinds of benefits should it offer? Uh, what kinds of rates should it pay to providers? How do you make sure providers participate in the program? At the same time, you already have several public option bills that have already been introduced by different senators uh, answering those questions, and they vary widely on the populations who can be covered and the generosity of the benefits. And so it's interesting that instead of endorsing one of those bills that already exists where they've already done all the work, they're saying, okay, we're going to start again and take a new path. I don't know if that's not wanting to play favorites or because they see the bills already out there as unworkable, but it does kick the can down the road a bit. 
I think it's really also an acknowledgement that this is a policy that at the soundbite level is broadly appealing, I think, both to Democrats in Congress and to a lot of voters. The idea of having the government be more involved in the creation of private insurance, creating an option, not a mandatory program. But the reality is, is that actually the policy details of standing up a public option are much more complicated than the soundbite is. And I think that if Democrats in Congress really want to make this policy real, they do have to go back to kindergarten a little bit, I think, and think about all of these tricky details about all of these interconnected aspects of how a public option plan would work. How is it going to establish prices? How is it going to build a network? Who is it going to be offered to? What will the interactions be with other kinds of insurance? What will the interactions be in the markets that currently exist for private insurance in the Obamacare exchanges? And I think the answers to these questions are difficult. I think the policy work is complex and the cost is very variable depending on what the answers to these questions are. If you looked at President Biden's campaign plan, it was very lacking in details about the answers to any of these questions. He said the word public option. I think he was trying to signal an openness to more government involvement in providing insurance to individuals who don't get insurance through work, but almost every detail was left unfulfilled. And so on the one hand, I do think you can see this, as Alice says, as kicking the can down the road and sort of appearing to do work without having to take a vote. On the other hand, when I talk to congressional staffers who, are, who have been doing this stuff for a very long time, they say it's really not possible to pass a public option right now because the legislating just hasn't been done yet. And so this is, I think, a real first step in the direction of taking this seriously, of doing the kind of work with hearings and legislative writing and amendment that is, you know, as we've all learned, is actually necessary to do meaningful healthcare reform because the system is really complicated and there are a lot of moving parts. And so the Democrats have two challenges when it comes to a public option. One is political. Uh, lots of constituencies in the healthcare industries and certainly in Congress are opposed to the idea. But I think the other one is technical. It's figuring out how are you going to make this machine work and how are you going to slot it into this existing healthcare system? And they are at least now, it seems, taking a real stab at that second thing. One thing that it made me think of actually, because in the technical term, they started with this request for information, this RFI process. And, you know, it wasn't too long ago when Congress actually did pass meaningful healthcare changes about surprise medical bills. And similarly, there was kind of, the, I believe they started with an RFI multiple lifetimes ago, maybe now, but they did. Um, you know, and in a way, it buys you time in the way that you need it, right? These changes are, and that also was, I mean, getting rid of surprise medical bills, again, similarly, like Margot says, sounds great. It's a great soundbite, but there's a lot of really complicated market dynamics that you need to sort out before you pass something. And I think this buys you time politically, but also to sort out all those technical details. Yeah, I was going to say it reminds me of the run up to the Affordable Care Act, which started in about 2006. I mean, I, that's when the Massachusetts plan passed. And that's when Congress sort of really started in on earnest. And there were retreats and hearings and white papers. And I mean, you really do need this stuff. You know, Obama actually got elected sort of at the end um, of that that sort of planning process. It was all teed up. All he had to do was say the word 
forward and Congress had already done most of the preliminary work. So I feel like this is sort of the kicking off of the federal public option and sort of, you know, what it might ultimately turn into. In the meantime, in the absence of federal action, we're seeing states moving ahead, or at least trying to move ahead on a public option of their own. Colorado appears on the precipice of passing one, as does Nevada. Washington, as in the state, already has a public option up and running, but it's not a very strong one. Any prospects for any of these others giving us a better idea of how a public option might work, or are they all going to get as watered down as Washington state seems to have been? I tend to be dubious that any of these state plans are really going to have a large impact. And it's not just because of the political challenges that all these states are encountering because they face opposition from healthcare providers, they face lobbying pressures from insurers who, you know, don't want the government competing with them. I think the problems actually are larger than that. And there are two things that I really think about. One is that running a health insurance program is actually quite difficult. Um, Historically, states ran their own Medicaid programs, so they had some administrative experience actually being health insurers, but they've largely farmed that out to private insurers. They contract now to Medicaid-managed care plans in almost every state of the country, and the reason is is because running an insurance company is a hard and technical thing that state officials don't always have a lot of capacity to do. The other challenge, I think, is that the real way that a public option plan is likely to achieve savings is in the same way that Medicare and Medicaid achieve savings relative to private insurance, and that is forcing doctors and hospitals and pharmaceutical companies to some degree to accept lower prices than they do from other kinds of insurance. And I just don't think that the states have the same leverage over the health providers that the federal government does. So you could imagine a federal public option plan that basically says a condition of uh, getting Medicare payments is that you also accept some lower payment for these public option plans. The states in general just don't have the same ability to really force providers to accept their plan. And so that leaves them in a position where they either have a plan that basically pays the same amount as what other insurers do, and then there's not a whole lot of savings, or they pay less and no one wants to play and then they don't really have a good network that's appealing for people to sign up. So I do think the states, you know, watching them work through some of the political issues, I think is a nice preview of some of the political issues that we will face in Congress. But I think even the ones that get across the finish line are just sort of set up to have a little bit less success than a federal public option might. Right. I remember when Washington State was doing this, the legislation I think was first proposed, uh, to your point, Margot, they pegged the reimbursement rates, I think, based on Medicare rates. And surely enough, by the time the bill was actually signed into law, it had inched up and up and up. And it wasn't quite at private health insurance reimbursement rates, which, of course, are the highest, but not too far off. So really, I mean, this boils down to a lot of who gets paid what, and anytime you have very powerful healthcare interests uh, being told that their reimbursements are going to get cut, not unexpected that you're going to have a lot of opposition. And, and these groups, uh, like in uh, Washington D.C., all around the country, they have a lot of uh, they have a lot of clout in their state legislatures too. So I don't think we should underestimate the political power that these guys have. Can I say one more thing about public options, not to be uh, overly negative about public options, but I think one of the goals of the public option always was, you know, among the people who conceived it 
was to provide a more affordable option for people who were buying their own insurance. That private insurance uh, is expensive and a lot of people can't afford it. And a lot of people who are uninsured are uninsured because they can't afford their health insurance. And, you know, we saw in the early years of Obamacare that in certain markets, the premiums for health insurance were quite expensive. And especially for certain populations, they were really financially out of reach. And so the public option was conceived as this could be a cheaper plan, you know, that if you're having trouble paying an Obamacare premium, maybe you would want to buy this government plan that's 10, 20, 30 percent cheaper. I don't know exactly what it would be. But the Biden administration has passed in the American Rescue Plan this very substantial enhancement of the subsidies for Obamacare plans that really increase the generosity for almost everyone. There are some people who are still exposed to the very high cost of health insurance, but all the way up the income scale now, the amount that you can be asked to pay for health insurance has been capped. And for people who are on more strained uh, budgets, the number has really been pushed down a lot. And so I think that means that the advantages of having the public option are somewhat diminished. The number of people who are, would directly benefit from the sticker price of insurance being lower for this particular plan is actually vanishingly small. Yes. And of course, that's part of why the, you know, the, the next effort is to make the those enhanced subsidies permanent since they're only two years. Um, right. And I'm already hearing, you know, the industry make that point. Um, of course, it's in their interest to get massive government subsidies and not have to actually lower the cost of what they're selling. Right. I mean, this whole thing is super economically inefficient. We are now, the, the federal government is paying more to subsidize more expensive private insurance, but at least it's protecting the, right. Instead of creating a cheaper public option, right. Yeah, and the public option, you know, by creating pricing pressure, I could save the federal government money. I mean, I don't want to make it seem like there's no savings to be had, but I think it's not as likely to be experienced by the consumer. And I think in general, uh, the public doesn't care as much about what the federal spending is on health programs, and, and or at least not as much as Congress does. So it may be a tougher sell if there are other downsides. Yeah, it definitely alters the politics. I'm also hearing, you know, progressives point to what's happened in the states to to as a sort of a warning sign of of letting the industry scare or bully or lobby policymakers into creating such a watered down public option that it's not even you know tr truly public. It's you know privately run and doesn't actually bring down costs that much. And so it, they are having to walk this tightrope of not drawing so much industry opposition that it never gets off the ground, but not um, uh, caving so much to industry's demands that what you end up with is not a true public option. So continuing on the healthcare is hard theme, there is news this week, kind of, on the Medicaid expansion front. Um, we talked, I think it was last week, about how the Republican governor of Missouri was refusing to expand Medicaid uh, despite a successful voter initiative there last summer. Now expansion supporters are suing to try to force the expansion, but it's not just expansion that's not happening in Missouri. The legislature adjourned without renewing a provider tax that brings in $3 billion in federal matching funds every year, uh, unless that bill to uh, to re renew the tax includes uh, a ban that would cover some forms of contraception. If this tax actually expires in September, it threatens to shut down every nursing home in the state, says the nursing home industry. Um, this seems not great politics, even for an abortion fight. Oh. 
Where do we start? I'll touch on the Medicaid stuff, I guess. I think it was entirely expected that there would be a lawsuit come in the state's way uh, because of the initiative that passed. Uh, as you all know, uh, Medicaid is one of my favorite programs to cover. I think that two things that I think can't be underestimated about expanding Medicaid in some of these really conservative states. Uh, one is that you know, 10% of the budget is is no joke. In some of these places, it is hard to come up with the money, let alone having the political will to do it. But the second thing too, that we'll have to see what happens. But, you know, during the Trump administration, of course, they opened the gates to allowing states to enact things like work requirements, you know, more aggressive cost sharing so that enrollees would have to pay more. And it did give some of these conservative lawmakers more political cover to expand their programs to enroll more people. But of course, now we don't have that under the Biden administration. And I do think it, it could be detrimental to their larger efforts because you're not going to get the meet me in the middle with some of these policies because they're just not going to go there. They've made it perfectly clear that work requirements are not going to happen. So we'll have to see how that shakes out. But I think the lawsuits are entirely expected when it comes to this sort of thing. The provider tax thing, though, is wild. I think for, for people who don't know, um, provider taxes are pretty common around the country. Um, the, basically, the way it works is, as you, as you point out, Medicaid is a shared federal state program. And so states will tax hospitals or nursing homes, um, and they'll use that as the state share uh, to claim federal matching funds. So basically, the state doesn't have to come up with its own money out of the treasury. Um, the providers are happy because they get paid. Um, so sort of holding this provider tax hostage just seems to be kind of a of of a wild thing to do. I mean, it's it's classic sort of cutting off your nose to spite your face here. It's hard to imagine that that this won't I mean, they have until September to renew this, but I have not seen this particular kind of fight uh, in any other state yet. Yeah, I'm surprised in the to the extent that nursing homes are a very, very powerful constituency. Uh, nationally and at the state level. And I'm surprised that anyone would basically dare to go up against them in this particular way, uh, even if it's over something like abortion, which is pretty unpopular, of course, in states like Missouri and elsewhere. Yeah, it, that's a lot of money. And, and these states are really, really dependent on pro provider taxes to make their Medicaid programs run. For yeah, sure. that's wild. Well, meanwhile, Wyoming, which decided not to expand Medicaid earlier this summer, is apparently reconsidering that decision. And then there's Wisconsin, which doesn't technically have to expand because its Medicaid program already goes up to 100% of poverty, and those over that threshold can get subsidies to, to be on the ACA exchange. But the Democratic governor of Wisconsin proposed to expand anyway because those between 100 and 138% of poverty would likely get a better deal with Medicaid than with subsidies, although that may have changed with the new expanded subsidies. Anyway, that was quickly batted down by the Republican legislature. So after we kind of pronounced Medicaid expansion dead for the year a few weeks ago, maybe not. I mean, <laughs> might we actually see something happen somewhere? One of these remaining dozen states? I guess it's now 13 since Missouri is in and out. I think the states that have not yet expanded Medicaid are pretty dug in. And so there have been these ballot initiative measures like the one in Missouri, which have been a way of working around the lack of interest by the state legislatures. But I think in general, uh, it's going to be quite difficult to get these other states over the line without a big political change in a state legislative election. We saw, again, in the American Rescue Plan, the Biden administration trying to create some incentives for states to expand by just giving them more money if they do it. Um, 
And we've been through a lot of these state legislative sessions since then, and we've seen that extra money doesn't seem to be very much of an incentive for the ones that have held out. I think it's much more political. And they also, I think they've gotten used to running things the way that they have been running them, and they don't necessarily see the need as much. So I think it's going to be difficult. Certainly, I think it's, it's totally possible that additional states will come in either through ballot initiatives, through political change, but I think it will be slow. As it has been, although people like to remind other people that Medicaid was passed in 1965. It was voluntary for the states to join, and Arizona was the last state to join in 1982. So sometimes these things have to take the very long view. I think that with Wisconsin in particular, I mean, honestly, I think at this point, uh, Governor Tony Evers, I mean, he would have to essentially pull what former governor uh, of Arizona, Jan Brewer, did when she wanted to expand Medicaid, which is threatened to veto anything that came to her desk, regardless of whether it was related or not. I think that because it's it's so clear at this point that, you know, he's tried. I'm going to put tried in air quotes because I think some people would say that he's not really trying, that it's clear that the Republicans uh, in the legislature are not going to play ball on this. So you would have to be more aggressive. And we have seen it done in other places, although I don't know if it would be effective there. So yeah, and we and there is another ballot measure coming in South Dakota. Um, so we'll we'll have to watch that one. All right, well, let's talk about COVID, um, which is getting better, but still here. Uh, the US passed the 50% threshold for adults being fully vaccinated and cases and deaths are way down in most of the country. Um, but now some ethicists are calling out the US for using our vaccine surplus to give shots to low risk adolescents, instead of sending it to high risk adults in other countries. What's the argument here? I think the Biden administration is kind of in an interesting and difficult place politically when it comes to vaccines. There is so much political pressure domestically to make sure that Americans can get vaccines and that we can go back to normal as quickly as possible. And this started with the Trump administration, of course, with Operation Warp Speed, that they made these contracts with vaccine manufacturers to purchase large numbers of doses in advance. And the Biden administration has bought more and, you know, The United States basically has bought more vaccine doses than it can possibly use to vaccinate, you know, give two shots to everyone who needs two shots and to vaccinate children. And they probably are going to have enough left over for if we need boosters. At the same time, you know, a lot of the world has almost no vaccine access at all. And I think there is a real tension. There are many people in uh, Democrats in Congress and people inside the Biden administration who I think are very concerned about the global inequity and about the very dangerous pandemic that we're seeing spreading in other parts of the world. Um, India, I think, is a crucial example, although it does seem like uh, the really absolutely uh, dire situation there has gotten a little bit better. Um, There also are several countries in South America that really are having terrible out-of-control COVID pandemics. And those, for the most part, are countries that didn't have the ability to make deals with these pharmaceutical companies in advance for large numbers of doses. They may not have the financial resources to really buy them anyway. And I just think there's this very difficult dance. We saw the uh, U.S. Trade Representative a few weeks ago come out in favor of waiving the patent protections uh, on these vaccines, That and that has to go through a whole other process through the World Trade Organization. So the fact that they have endorsed it does not mean that it will happen. But I think that that was an effort to basically say, we know that the rest of the world needs vaccine, and we want to make it easier for them to produce it domestically. But you know, that is going to take a very long time uh, to yield results for those countries, if it does at all. 
And in the meantime, it is true that the U.S. is vaccinating lots and lots of low-risk people, is vaccinating children, has given basically second doses to everyone who has gotten a two-dose vaccine. And meanwhile, we are seeing in these other countries, very high-risk populations have gotten nothing. You know, in India, I saw a statistic, there were like 50 doctors dying a day of COVID because they do not have enough vaccine in India to vaccinate even healthcare workers. And bioethicists have been saying for a long time, uh, even before a vaccine was developed, that there should have been a global strategy where high-risk populations in the world got the vaccine before low-risk populations got them, got there anywhere. And that clearly is not the way that things have played out. And this is where I get to point out, because I point it out every week, that this is not just a, you know, goodness of your heart exercise, that if the virus, you know, runs rampant in other countries, it could encourage the development of variants that our vaccines might not cover. So it's in our interest to make sure that we that our vaccines continue to work and the way that we can make sure our vaccines continue to work is to get more people around the world vaccinated. Absolutely. But the reason it's not an obvious, easy decision is that low risk for adolescents and children doesn't mean no risk. Children still can get really sick and even die and have from the virus. Um, Also, the ability of children to get vaccinated impacts adults who interact with them. And right now, the inability of young children to get vaccinated is, from what I'm hearing, you know, impacting adults' ability to travel, to go back to work. And so there's a reason why the Biden administration is really struggling over this dilemma. Yeah, I have a personal, I can get personal with that footnote. Mom of a toddler here, and I am not getting on a plane until my kid is vaccinated, even though my husband and I uh, fully are. So it's definitely a, it's to Alice's point, real world example right here on what the health is. It's true that it's, people have difficult choices to make. Uh, until we yeah. get everyone. This pandemic has tested the world in, in lots and lots of ways. Well, Roshna, I'm going to actually ask you to do your extra credit early in case the rest of us want to comment on it, because it's sort of the other big COVID story of the week. Yes. Yeah, so we've had a lot of attention this week on uh, the possibility that uh, the coronavirus, you know, may have escaped somehow from a, a Chinese lab. And uh, there's been growing calls for greater investigations into the virus's origin because 17 months later, we still do not know. So my extra credit was a Wall Street Journal story that talked about how the headline was intelligence on six staff at Wuhan lab fuels debate on COVID-19 origin. So this is basically talking about how there were researchers that went to a hospital uh, in China shortly before uh, the outbreak was confirmed. And, you know, this is sort of adding on to the the list of things now that are coming out uh, that are making our even our top uh, officials in the U.S. say we really need to investigate where this came from. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the Biden administration has now sort of reversed itself after saying, well, this was a conspiracy theory that it was a bioweapon out of this Wuhan lab. And of course, the U.S. had been funding this Wuhan lab. And as Fauci was asked at a congressional hearing yesterday, he's like, why are we doing this research in China? And Fauci said, that's where the bats are. That's, I mean, there's a reason. This is where these pandemics come from. But I'm sort of fascinated by the politics of this, because for the longest time, it wasn't even so much the Trump administration, but, you know, it was kind of a, there were conspiracy theories that this was a bioweapon and that China let it out loose on purpose. Now there seems to be intelligence that suggests it wasn't a bioweapon. It was just something that may have leaked out of the lab. My, My question for the panel is, does it matter? I mean, I keep I go back and forth about deciding, you know, it's it's kind of too late. Um, 
does it matter whether it came from a lab or whether it came from a wild animal market? I think it matters because it will impact how labs are run going forward and it will determine whether additional safety protocol are needed. I think you're right that it will continue to be a political football and continue to be a way for lawmakers to attack each other and various elected officials over past decisions and how the investigation has gone so far. But um, I think it absolutely does matter. And hopefully whatever the investigation uncovers can be used in the interest of public health going forward and not just as a, a political cudgel. I think it also should be a caution to us as journalists as well, that throughout the pandemic, one of the really difficult elements has been that this is a brand new pathogen. Uh, and we, there's so much that we just don't know about it. And there's so much more that we didn't know about it early on. And I think that the public has always been looking for very clear guidance on what's true and what's not true, on what to worry about and what not to worry about, about the disease, about how it's spread, about public health measures, about where it came from. And we all have to be careful and be honest about the things that we don't know when we don't know them, even though it can be unsatisfying. And I think that this dismissal of the idea that this uh, pathogen could have uh, come from a lab leak is just like an example um, of which there are a few, I think, of people really rushing to judgment about something and acting as though a valid question was outside the bounds of appropriate discourse. I don't think that the answer to this question affects anything about how we uh, conduct ourselves during the pandemic, what the response should be or what it should have been. But I do think that it is an example of a way in which we all needed to be perhaps a little bit more open-minded in the early days of the pandemic about the things that we didn't understand. Yeah, a little humility never hurts. Rush. Oh, I just, I mean, from the health and science angle, I mean, I totally agree with, with what Margot and Alice have said. I think just more generally, too, one thing that uh, I've read uh, elsewhere, too, is, you know, the U.S. has a complicated relationship with China, just sort of geopolitically. And I think that if it helps to understand if we can find out where this virus really came from, I mean, I think there could be consequences for the U.S.'s broader relationship with China that our foreign policy officials and others and national security officials really would want to better understand so that the U.S. knows how to conduct itself more broadly with, with the Chinese government. So that's the other thing I would add as to why we I think it is important to know. And the WHO. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for the rest of our extra credits. That's where we recommend a story we read this week. We think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org. Roshana, you've already gone. Margo, why don't you go next? Uh, I wanted to suggest a Kaiser Health News story from a reporter named Anna Almandrala. The article is called Corporations Encourage Employee Vaccination But Stop Short of Mandates. Um, this is a topic that's uh, of great interest to me as a uh, person working remotely but about to go back into an in-person office in a couple of months. Um, this story did a really nice job of looking at um, the largest corporations in the U.S. and looking at what their policies were in relation to COVID-19 vaccinations. And it seems like all of them are pro-vaccine 
and have developed policies designed to encourage their workers to get a vaccine, whether it's uh, additional time off or financial rewards or just uh, messages encouraging them to do it. But basically, none of these large corporations are requiring proof of vaccination uh, as a condition of employment. And I don't know that that is like a huge surprise, but I guess I might have expected there to be one or two that did it. Um, I think this is, you guys talked about this on the podcast recently. It's a decision that is facing a lot of employers and uh, probably increasingly is going to face governments too when they start to think about going back to public school once a vaccine is approved for younger children. So just a nice look at what employers are doing in this uh, new sort of post-mask world. Yeah, this issue is going to clearly continue as a topic of conversation for us. Alice. I wanted to recommend a piece in Huffington Post by Jonathan Cohen. It's called Can America Close the COVID Vaccine Race Gap? And he's reporting on the ground from Detroit. What he's uh, examining is really a national problem we have right now. The racial disparity in who is getting vaccinated is persisting. And now it's in this phase where, you know, we've gotten all the low hanging fruit, we've gotten all the people who are really eager to be vaccinated, and now is the very expensive and painstaking work of tracking down the people who either don't know enough or haven't been able to access a vaccination site or have uh, concerns or hesitations. And I think he does a good job of really showing how resource intensive this phase is. And it just takes a ton of work and effort to even convince one person to get the shot, but it, it has to happen or otherwise we won't uh, reach herd immunity. And so I think really thinking through the best strategies now to reach those harder to reach folks. It was a good piece. Well, mine is from our sometime podcast panelist, Sarah Cliff at the New York Times. It's called COVID Killed His Father, Then Came a Million Dollars in Medical Bills. And it's Sarah doing what Sarah does, exposing the insanity of medical billing in the United States. Remember, costs for COVID were not supposed to be the responsibility of patients at all. Health insurers pretty much all promise to pick up the entire tab. But it seems that lots of patients are getting lots of bills anyway, whether because things got coded wrong or because people who got COVID in their early days might never have been tested or because insurers are rolling back those 2020 programs, even though people are still getting COVID today. Uh, and it's not just the bills themselves. Getting these charges sorted out are part-time or even full-time jobs for some of these patients or their family members. In some cases, it's for people, for family members who have died and now their heirs are trying to sort out the bills. It's really, you know, continuing troubling story about our healthcare system and how it tries to collect its money. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Ying, who makes us all sound good even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at jrovner. Margot? At Sanger Katz. Alice? At Alice Olstein. Roshana. At Roshana Dixit. We will be back in your feed next week with a special deep dive into prescription drug prices. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.